one of your skill sets you recommend is tooting your own horn. How do you toot your own horn in the collective? I always say you can toot your own horn, just don't blow it, (laughs) which means, (laughs) you know, it's okay to advocate for yourself and share your strengths. And when I say toot your own horn, there's a couple of different things. One is professionally. Hey guys, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice. I have a really heartwarming episode for you today. The conversation with my guests took an unexpected turn and became emotional and vulnerable in a way that very few people on her level ever revealed. Anne Grady is the author of Mind Over Moment, Harness the Power of Resilience. She and I discussed the simple idea of how to create and channel a mindset that will help you get out of a mental rut so you can pursue your passions, goals, and dreams. After you listen, please leave a comment about how you enjoyed the conversation and rate the show for me. It will mean a lot. Also, please share this episode with just one person, wherever you are in the world. Now, meet Anne Grady. Enjoy. And welcome to the Brain and Branch. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. You're on the opposite side of the world in Austin. How is the weather at the moment in Austin? Well, interesting. You should ask. We just recovered from a, a monumental ice storm, which you would not think happens in Austin, <laughs> Texas. No. But um, the trees were so heavy from the ice that they all just broke So we are, I'm like literally surrounded by, it looks like trees had a pillow fight if those were trees. And so like our yard is completely devastated. Like we just had four or five 50 foot oaks just drop um, to the street. So if you drive around here, it literally looks like a war zone with with trees. It's been crazy. But today it's beautiful, sunny and 65. (laughs) Is your family okay? You have any property damaged? Uh, luckily the property damage is minimal, family safe, everyone's okay. So we're, we're very grateful. It could have been a lot worse. There were, uh, trees falling on cars and roofs and everything else all around us. So we were pretty blessed and fortunate. Yeah. My, my parents live in North Carolina mm-hmm. and I think in regions of the world where you're not used to it, it's overwhelming, right? Like I had, it had, it happened outside of their property once where, we had like a team of people in the neighborhood pulling trees and trying to cut down from the root. It was insane. Well, I'm just glad that the the chainsaws took a break during this interview because there our, our entire street is littered with chainsaws and pole saws and, and things oh making God. lots of noise. Okay. Well, let's jump in before they come back. So thank you again. And we start this episode with a feature called Inside the Mind, where we have seven light questions to kind of access your mind, your mindset. Can we dive in? I'd love to. So the first question is ebook or printed book? Printed, 100%. Would you prefer writing next to a beach or in a mountain? A mountain. I grew up on a beach. Love the mountains. And if you're in this mountain writing and you've got a printed book next to you, would you rather have coffee or tea? Coffee. And then if you left after drinking coffee and you had tickets to one of these two, which would you prefer, a ballet or opera? 
Ooh, I've been to both. I think ballet. No opera. I don't know. I'd go to both. (laughs) I'd snag the tickets and go to both. (laughs) Uh, Your favorite holiday, Thanksgiving or Christmas? Well, as a Jewish girl that grew up in New Jersey, Christmas is by far my favorite holiday. I celebrate it every year. We have a beautiful Hanukkah bush. It's wonderful. Lovely, lovely. And if you're relaxing, you're having a Netflix night, would you prefer a romance or drama? Drama. Okay. And then lastly, poetry or short stories? Mm, Short stories. Thank you so much for allowing us to go inside your mind. When did you discover you were resilient, Anne? You know, it's so funny. And that's a great question because nobody's ever asked me. Uh, you know, I I think most people don't necessarily think of themselves as resilient. I've certainly endured quite a few traumas, as do most people. It wasn't until 2016 or 17 when I was asked to do a TEDx talk on resilience. And my response was, I don't know anything about resilience. And, and one of the <laughs> folks who was selecting speakers for um, St. Louis Women said, I've been to your talks. I've heard your story. You are the epitome of resilience. We want you to do a talk. And so because I didn't know anything about it, I dug into the research to really try to understand it. I was already studying the brain because of my son and, and his illness Um and, and so I was fascinated to know that there were a lot of things that I was doing unintentionally that were supporting my resilience, but there were also plenty of things I was doing that were sabotaging my resilience. And so that's what really um, got me interested in, in the idea and the topic and believing that I had resilience myself. You have to tell us one or two things that you were doing to sabotage yourself. Oh, gosh. Well, I am, you know, I was diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 19. So the irony of a depressed motivational speaker is not lost on me. Um, And I think one of the big traps that a lot of us fall into is I was trying to find happiness. And I think happiness, we're, it's an $11 billion industry. That was as of 2008, just in the U.S. Oh, wow. so we're on this constant search for happiness. The problem is life is not a fairy tale and happiness is not a state. It's an emotion and it's okay to not be happy. It's okay to not be okay. And I think one of the biggest things I was doing that was sabotaging my resilience is when I wasn't happy, I was beating myself up because we have this culture of toxic positivity. Like, come on, look on the bright side. You have so much to be grateful for. Look at the silver lining. And I was struggling with a child with severe mental illness and autism and uh, a tumor in my salivary gland that resulted in facial paralysis and a whole bunch of other things. And I was like, what is wrong with me? I should be happy. And that was really (laughs) creating more unhappiness. So that was probably one of the bigger things. Um, There were several things, though. For example, when you're sad and you don't feel like doing much, you don't exercise and exercise is you know, a natural antidepressant. Now I'm on everything but roller skates, so there's nothing wrong with meds and (laughs) therapy, but, but, you know, I think not exercising, not being social, withdrawing, isolation, trying to focus on finding a state of happily ever after. Those were my biggest saboteurs. Wow. Do you feel as a, 
professional at your level that we place too much pressure, particularly on women. Like we've created this narrative of like the superwoman dynamic. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't plan to ask this question. I'm asking because I'm just thinking about the work you're doing and the demand on your schedule and so forth. How do you feel about that? Like, what are your thoughts? Well, a hundred percent. I think that we put unrealistic demands on women for a lot of things, but women are primary caregivers typically. You know, that's not to say men disengage from their families or their kids or their aging parents. They don't, but historically women have taken on the role as caregivers. And so we're also now trying to work full-time jobs. Um, the pandemic threw everything into um disarray for every woman who's hired into a director level position right now, four to five are leaving. And it is because fans wow. placed on our, the expectations, I should say, placed on us to be a career, you know, success and have the perfect social media feed and look great and feel great and still raise our kids and be a PTA mom and, and take the kids to soccer and then take a call in, you know, China at nine o'clock at night to try <laughs> to stay, you know, focused on being a great global team member. I think it's, it's unrealistic for everybody, regardless of gender, but I think um, historically and, and currently there are a lot of unrealistic demands placed on women that, um, that create so many mental health challenges. We're going to talk a bit about, you know, the subject, the fundamental subject of how do we get unstuck or out of a rut, but I, I'm actually interested in, do you think there's a gene for resilience or where some people are just fundamentally born with more resilience, or do you think it's just a constant muscle that you build? It's a constant muscle that you build. There, There is no genetic link to resilience. It's not that some people are born stronger. However, I think of resilience as kind of a buffer zone that absorbs the potholes and the bumps and the you know traumas of life. And some people have an ability to main, get back to an emotional equilibrium state that comes more naturally and more easily than for others. So for example, take someone like me who's got clinical depression, right? My, my ability to absorb those, my buffer starts out smaller because of neurochemical and biological shifts in my brain. That doesn't mean I can't build that buffer and that muscle. It just means that I might have to work a little bit harder than someone who's naturally more optimistic and, you know, sees the world a little bit differently and has a different genetic makeup. But no, resilience is a muscle. It's a set of skills and habits and behaviors. And we can cultivate them. And life gives us so many chances to practice. Um, but no, it is not that some people are more genetically blessed with a resilience gene. You broke your book down into three phases, part one, part two, part three. Was there a particular reason why you structured it this way relative to the goals that you had for the reader? Well, one, I think anytime you have a framework that's easy to understand, it helps you retain what you learn. So if you've ever read a paragraph and then not remembered what you read, you know that the adult adult attention span is pretty minimal. And we typically don't, I I think the statistic is the average adult will retain um, 20% of what they learn 48 hours after they learn it. So it's like the adult attention span. So I wanted to create an easy to understand framework, but In addition to that, 
I broke it down into your mindset, your skill set, and your ability to reset because those are really the foundation of the way I've learned to build resilience and practice it, but also the way I teach it to others. So let's talk about the mindset of, I like how you started with the struggle is real. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I like, I think, you know, as an author myself, I think one of the things that's underappreciated is books that are written in a way that's easy to remember, right? Where the framing is, is is something that I can relate to. It's something I want to share. I can imagine how many people have shared it. Like, girl, dude, the struggle is real. You got to read this opening part of mindset. Was that done on purpose? Like, tell it, take me through your mindset around designing the language for this book. Well, I wanted to write a book that I would want to read. And I have read a lot on adversity and resilience and change and, and uncertainty and happiness and emotional intelligence. And there, you know, a lo- there's a lot of great literature out there. It's not that anything I'm sharing in this book is um, rocket science or, or new, but what I wanted to do was to write it like I speak, which is very casual, conversational, yes, easy to yes, understand, yes. and yeah. also for the reader to identify with it. Because we've both read books, I'm sure that, you know, everything is perfect and the author's life is wonderful and they've learned how to apply all these skills and they never struggle. And they, you know, it's it's unrelatable because then we kind of judge ourselves into that comparison trap. And so I wanted to be pretty candid, just like I am in my speeches and in my training sessions for for organizations around the world. I, I, I really tell it like it is. I call myself a truth bomb dropper because I'm not trying to hide behind you know, this bravada or, or perfection, I, I live it every day. And so I wanted to make the book a reflection of that. Yeah. You know, that balance between trying to find this kind of equilibrium between telling the truth, but also still remaining attractive because people are drawn to people that are aspirational. People are drawn to, there's almost like this magnetic pull. And I do think there's something around vulnerability that's becoming more attractive. But it's, and I'm not sure we're there yet. You know, it's almost like this vicious cycle of news feeds of like everything is perfect almost becomes this force that people are drawn to. I'm interested in social media. Let's just talk there real quick because I've had people really close to me that I felt like social media was reducing their ability to be resilient. It was causing them to get stuck in a rut Please share your thoughts. You address this in the book, but I really love to hear your thoughts on this. I think it depends on how you use it, right? So social media can be a great way to maintain connections and relationships and generate positive emotions, which signal safety to your brain and um, and helps build resilience. Unfortunately, what it ends up being is either something to do while we're bored and we just end up scrolling endlessly through feeds. And what we don't realize is while we're doing that, it's subconscious, but we're comparing our life and our insides to everybody else's highlight reel. Um, Most people don't post the crappy stuff. They don't post the fight they had with their significant other in the kitchen over how to load a dishwasher. They're posting their tropical vacation. And so it's easy to look at those pictures and compare our life and wonder How did they have some magic key to this beautiful kingdom of happily ever after? What's wrong with me? And the research shows that if you 
get off of social media for like two weeks, you reduce depression and anxiety in half. And so I think if you're using it to stay connected and comment and engage the people that are important to you, that can be very positive. If you're using it as a way to escape boredom or you're just trying to numb discomfort or or difficult emotions by not having to address them, then it can be a, a tool that really sabotages our resilience and our strength and our courage. One of the skill sets that I really enjoyed as part of your book is savor delicious moment. When was the last time you had a delicious moment? This morning. <laughs> I have delicious. I try. So a delicious moment I describe as any moment that we rush past in our search for happily ever after. So it's like that first sip of coffee when you're cold or tired. It's a great mm. hug um, from someone that you care about. It's a belly laugh. It's snuggling with your dog. It's a million different things that are so simple. We just kind of rush past them. But life is just really a collection of those moments. And the research shows that if when you're having a really great moment like that, you stop and savor it, meaning you step outside of the experience and really try to feel it, like internally try to feel that positive emotion for 15 to 20 seconds, you actually change the neural structure and function of your brain. And you can't see it, but hanging on the back of my office door right here is a delicious moments board. And so anytime I have one of those moments, I write it down on a sticky note or take a picture of something that reminds me, or if it's at a restaurant, I take a cocktail napkin or, you know, something like that. And I put it on the board because anytime you have one of those beautiful moments, you get a surge of dopamine and serotonin, the happy hormones that make you feel good. You have a decrease in the stress hormone cortisol by like 23%. And you start priming your brain to look for what's right instead of what's wrong. So when you Mm. have the experience, you have that, that beautiful blend of all of those things. When you write it down and put it on your board, you have it again. And then your board hopefully gets overflowing and full. So you have to prune it. And when you do, you get that all over again. So I encourage people to keep a gratitude jar or a delicious moments board or a journal, because when you start training your brain to look for what's right, you're more likely to find it. What is a helper's high? A helper's high is the, basically what the research has found is that the single fastest increase in those hormones that I just talked about, serotonin and dopamine and endorphins and oxytocin, the cuddle hormone, um, these, that is the fastest way to get them is to help other people. Even witnessing an act of kindness creates that surge of, of emotion and hormones. So anytime we tend to get stuck in our own life, like what makes me happy? How do I feel? And the fastest way to feel better is to help somebody else. And that's what's been deemed a helper's high. You are a global thinker. So you would know that people in Japan think very differently about tooting their own horn as someone in the U.S., someone in Africa, very differently, someone in India. Yes. You know, there's a saying, I think in Japan, is like the person that stands up or whatever, they get hit down by a hammer. They get Mm -hmm. knocked back down. In fact, in thinking Japan, there's no word for I. The word translates to I'm a portion of. So let's speak to people outside of America who your one of your skill sets you recommend is tooting your own horn. How do you toot your own horn in the collective? I always say you can toot your own horn, just don't blow it, <laughs> which means 
You know, it's okay to advocate for yourself and share your strengths. And when I say toot your own horn, there's a couple of different things. One is professionally, right? It's up to us to keep a collection of successes, accomplishments, things that we're proud of and advocate for ourselves in performance reviews because the, our natural brain state is to default to the negative. It's called our negativity bias. It's a built-in protection mechanism that does not serve us well. It makes our brain really drawn to and magnify any kind of negative experiences. It's why when you get a performance review at work and you're told you do nine things amazingly well and you have one opportunity for growth, when you're laying in bed at night ruminating about your day, you're not thinking about the nine things you did well. You're you're just mulling over that opportunity for growth. So one of the things that I suggest people do in a corporate setting is don't be afraid to keep a collection of emails or, or projects or successes or recommendations, things that you are proud of so that you can share those, not in a, a ego bragful type way, but in an accomplishment sense. I think we don't do enough, and this is different based on your geography. So I don't claim to be a global expert, but whether I'm speaking with folks in Penang, Malaysia and or China, or I'm speaking in Bangalore, India, or I'm in Singapore or Slovakia, right? The, the truth is we all have a need for belonging. We all have a need to feel connected. And when I say toot your own horn, often I mean to yourself to acknowledge that you are doing a great job, that you are showing up every day, that you have survived every crappy, horrible thing that's ever happened to you, and you're still standing, that you will figure it out, that you are strong enough. And I think sometimes we're so, we're our worst, own worst critic. You would not, I don't know about you, I can't speak for you. I would not be friends with someone who talks to me the way I talk to myself. Like I would want to <laughs> punch that person. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near that person. And I think we don't often cultivate a kind relationship with ourselves. And allowing yourself to be proud of the things that you have navigated and made it through and accomplished is a really important component of building that resilience buffer zone. So someone has read the first part of your book and they've adopted the right mindset. They have employed these skills in part two, but they're still stuck in a rut. What advice do you have for them? Well, I don't know who said it, but there's a quote that a rut is just a grave with no ends. And oh, wow. Yeah. And when we're when we're stuck, which it's easy to become stuck and everybody does. I, you know, Adam Grant, uh, organizational psychologist and, and um, wrote a great article on languishing. And I think it's just this feeling of overall malaise. It's not that you're depressed or, you know, unable to function. It's just this kind of blah. And when you get in that state for long enough, you get in a rut. And the pain of staying where you are has to be, you know, the desire of the, the inspiration of where you want to go has to be greater. The discomfort of doing that has to be greater than the pain of staying where you are. So wow. there's an old parable about two guys sitting on a porch with their dog. It's Earl and Bubba. And this only works in Texas because we're the only ones who have Earl <laughs> and Bubba's. But they're sitting on a porch and they're rocking back and forth. And in between them is this giant hound dog. And every once in a while, this hound dog lets out a huge wail. And Earl turns to Bubba and he says, Bubba, what's wrong with your dog? And Bubba says, well, Earl, he's sitting on a nail. And Earl Ooh. says, well, 
Bubba, why don't he move? And Bubba says, well, Earl, I guess it don't hurt bad enough. Mm. Change usually happens one of two ways. We're either inspired or we're desperate. And most of us don't like to be uncomfortable. We get conditioned into our habits, which are just cognitive shortcuts that our brain creates to conserve energy. And those habits sometimes support us and sometimes don't, but your brain can't tell the difference. It just takes whatever we repeatedly think, say, or do and converts a cognitive shortcut. So for example, think of COVID. So many people got into a rut during COVID because their routine became exactly the same every single day. There was nothing to look forward to. There was nothing else to do. It just became a vicious cycle. And many of those habits that people developed have stayed with them long past the quarantines and having to shut down. So, you know, we, in my house, we developed this habit of we finish the work day and everybody goes and sits on the couch and we Netflix and chill. And prior to that, we would go out to dinner or we would take a walk or we would go places or do things. And what I have found in our family is we're still, we're still defaulting to that habit of Netflixing and chilling every single night, right? Even though it's not the right thing, but it's what our brain defaults to. So, you know, getting out of a rut means you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Wow. Who holds you accountable? Do you have people around you? Because I, I, what I like about you is that you are really vulnerable. You're really open. You're quite transparent. Do you, do you have family members? Do you have friends? Do you have colleagues? Do you have people on your team? You know, I, what I like about the way you structure this book towards the end when you talk about reset is you know, defining success is about a collective, right? It's not just you, right? It's about right. you're a child and so forth. But who are the people around you? I mean, you don't have to tell me personally their names, but who are they? Well, my husband and my two kids definitely, you know, hold no punches. So um, even yesterday, <laughs> I would, you know, yesterday morning, I was, I went downstairs and I was like, okay, and now we have to do this and we have to do this and we have to do this. And my husband was like, hold up, you're coming in hot. <laughs> And so, yes, the people in my own home are like, you know, you got to sometimes check that energy level. But I have an entire team of folks that I work with that are really wonderful at we hold each other accountable. I have dear friends, my tribe, the people that I turn to um, for laughter and to cry and everything else that that keep me in check. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think everybody needs, and then not to mention, you know, whether you use a coach or a therapist, everybody needs that accountability factor um, because it's really easy to just slip into routine. And that creates the rut you just talked about. I love that you sort of close the book towards the end with the trenches. If you ask anyone who had cancer, who overcome, who fought, fought cancer and battle cancer, if you ask anyone who's been through anything and overcome it, They'd probably say I'd do it again many times because they, you know, have become so much stronger and so much better. But if you ask somebody who's not gone through cancer, what do they want to go through cancer? So like the role of trenches in our life is extraordinary. And, you know, there's so many lessons. And I just I want to end this interview with you sharing like what is the role of trenches in our life and thinking about how we should think about them because we can't avoid them really, right? At some stage, you're going to experience them. What are your thoughts about trenches? Well, one of the key defining factors, one of the skills that you can cultivate to build resilience is making meaning 
of those trenches, right? Making meaning of difficult times. It's called post-traumatic growth. So while you're in the middle of it, you can't see it, but you're able to look back with perspective and with enough time passing, you're able to extract the lessons learned. So the trenches are going to be there, right? Life is a series of ups and downs and flat spaces and everything else. And the goal is to savor those beautiful moments and enjoy them while you have them and really internalize them so that you build up that capacity to absorb the trenches. And then it's when you're going through the trenches, understanding that the trench will pass. And that doesn't mean it it goes away. So for example, my son has autism and severe mental illness. That trench is not going away. I deal with that trench every single day. I'm, I'm living in that trench. Right. But I can still extract meaning from it. What before Evan's diagnosis and sharing that openly. And now that he's almost 20, he asks me to share it, which is like my proudest accomplishment. But I wouldn't have shared my own mental health journey. And one in five adults and children struggle with a mental health issue. So every time I talk about it, it makes it a little bit more safe for other people too. I wouldn't have written three books and donate a portion of all of the book proceeds to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I wouldn't have become a speaker that speaks to hundreds of thousands of people around the world every year, helping to end the stigma of mental illness, but build mental health and wellness, which is more than the absence of just mental illness. So I think the trenches, we can either get stuck in them and feel buried and hopeless, and that's a very normal emotion, but whether we stay in that trench uh, it is the option. And so while you might still be dealing with a pervasive illness or something that doesn't seem to be ending or going away, you can still extract meaning and use that to build strength to go forward smarter, stronger, more effectively. And Grady, thank you for the person that you are. Thank you for your work. I'm wishing you and your family all the best. And thanks for joining us on the Brain and Brad Show. Uh, Timothy, it was my honor wishing you all the best as well.